Hi there, welcome to Ed's Up, the podcast all about children and those who care for them. I'm Dr. Melody Musgrove. And I'm Dr. Kathy Grace. We're with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hey, Kathy, did you know there's a concept from architecture that can have a big impact on classroom instruction? Well, I guess good design is pretty important in a lot of things, but exactly how is architecture influencing education? Well, years ago, the field of architecture recognized that it's easier to design buildings that are accessible and functional for everyone. People in wheelchairs, those who are blind, or those who have limited mobility and other issues. Um, Architects realize that it's so much easier to design spaces from the very beginning that accommodate a wide range of individual variability rather than try to come back and retrofit buildings after the fact to support expanded access and participation. They adopted an approach called universal design to purposefully plan for wheelchair ramps, detailed visual signs, braille signage, wide doorways, door openers, accessible bathrooms, and so on, so that all people would feel welcome in a space. So what you're saying is architects try to anticipate the needs of all kinds of people who might enter a building instead of planning for the so-called typical person. Exactly. And then my friend David Rose, a professor at Harvard University, helped apply the concept of universal design to learning. He and his team proposed that it's easier to create materials, instruction, and assessments that are accessible to all students from the very beginning. Because the truth is, Kathy, you and I know there's no such thing as a typical or average child. Dr. Rose started the CAST Center to do research on Universal Design for Learning, or UDL, and what they found is super powerful. They have found that in many classrooms, it's the curriculum and the methods and the materials that are being used that are actually disabling because they're designed to reach a narrow range of students. And then when students don't do well, we label them as being slow or disabled when, in fact, it's the instruction that sometimes keeps kids from learning. So when we teach to the middle of the class, we actually miss a lot of kids. When we teach to the margins, though, like for the student who's gifted all the way to the student who has extensive support needs, we reach everyone. Our listeners are going to get to hear more about UDL today directly from one of the creators, Dr. David Rose, and learn how universal design for learning principles can really transform classrooms. So we're delighted today to have as our guest Dr. David Rose. Dr. Rose is the co-founder of CAST, which is a nonprofit research and development organization whose mission is to improve education for all learners through innovative uses of modern multimedia technology and contemporary research in cognitive neurosciences. Uh, That sounds very complicated, David. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you with us. Um, you know, I, I, something that has really transformed public education and can for many teachers is universal design for learning, something that you have been involved with since the very beginning. So, uh, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in universal design for learning? I don't often begin there, but for uh, you in particular, Um, I think my interest really started when I was a Head Start teacher. Um, Not many people know I taught Head Start. And uh, I was really interested in trying to reach kids who I had uh, had as students much later in their elementary school and high school who were really in trouble in school. And so I moved down to Head Start to try to See what could a teacher do at the Head Start level that would make a difference so the kids wouldn't uh, come 
pursue schooling with such, uh, with such uh, difficulty. And um, it was there that I think I really began my interest in individual differences because I could see how very strikingly different the kids were even at ages two and a half to four and a half, which I had, and um, that you could already tell a lot of kids were um, going to have trouble and some kids were going to do very well. And um, so that began, uh, for me, an interest in uh, neuroscience. What, what's different about these kids uh, and the way that they learn, and that really began uh, my career. I went back to get a doctorate at Harvard about um, how kids' uh, brains develop, um, how kids uh, learn that are uh, different from one another, and so on. And out of that work, um, I became a neuropsychologist and saw kids um, who were having all sorts of difficulties in school, had disabilities, had mental health challenges, and so on. And um, we formed a clinic uh, which looked at, well, what could we do with modern technologies that would help um, help kids who were having difficulties in school, significant difficulties, kids who had disabilities, and so on. And that was where CAST got formed. But we were all neuropsychologists, um, and at a children's hospital uh, looking to what we do that was different and better than what was happening um, with our reports at the time. And uh, after a little while, we began to see, well, you know, just technology just isn't, you know, the change everything um, immediately kind of thing, that we could see that that work even in schools a lot of kids were still having trouble, and um, we realized that instead of viewing the kids as having the problem exclusively, that uh, in a lot of cases, what was happening in schools were just really poorly designed for who the kids really were. So we were doing, again, very intense neuropsychological evals of who the learner really was, and we could see that there was a mismatch between the kids and what the school was doing. And that really began the work on universal design for learning. What if we designed the school curricula differently so that more kids could succeed rather than have it be a one-size-fits-all curriculum so that some kids would succeed and some kids would inevitably show up as having disabilities and failures of various kinds. And so that's really where the work of universal design her learning came from was recognizing from a neuroscience standpoint that kids are really different and from an educational standpoint that curricula tended to teach to reach them as if they were all the same and that that mismatch was pernicious and, and bad for kids and bad for teachers. Um, so that's the origin of universal design, really. It's really fascinating, David. Um, you and I have known each other for a number of years, and I've often heard you say that for some reason we have historically taught to some fictitious average child. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I think that goes back to my roots at, in Head Start, that it was so striking how different the kids were already at that age. And, of course, every parent knows that. When you have two or three kids, they seem really different. Our schools, because we have you know, one teacher to 25 kids and stuff, have traditionally had to try to teach to the average. And in doing so, what happens is we often are 
failing to challenge enough kids who uh, come into uh, the kinds of things school requires with great advantage. They often are under-challenged and uh, not learning enough. And the kids who learn quite differently are also under-challenged because they can't do the kind of work that's being assigned very well, and they develop negative attitudes, negative senses of themselves, and so on. So treating everybody with an average approach turns out not to really work for very many. And uh, it's one of the sort of most difficult things for uh, schools to handle. And uh, it creates lots of problems for us. The reason we're interested in technology is not because it's the end all, but because it gives us more options. We can have a more powerful tool that teachers can use uh, to help kids learn to read and write and to help kids read and write in very different ways. So it's just a set of tools that are just like modern airplanes or cars. They're, they're more powerful. They allow us to do more. And mostly they allow us to reach different kids differently. So when we teach to the fictitious middle and then we have children who don't meet the expectations, then we call the students disabled, right? Rather than I've had I've heard you say before that sometimes it's the curriculum, it's the it's the environment that is disabling and not the children. That was a big revelation to us uh, after we've been doing this for some years was we, too, came into the, our work as neuropsychologists viewing kids as having the disabilities. And it was only when we really worked with schools that we started seeing, wow, this curriculum or this way of teaching is not reaching Billy. And it could if it was being taught in a different way or using different tools. And then we started seeing, wow, that a lot of times the classroom itself is quite disabled. There's kids that just doesn't reach very well. And um, perhaps giving an example would be helpful. Just, uh, for example, if you're in a social studies class in middle school uh, and you really want to teach citizenship uh, or American history or any of the important things for kids to learn, but if the kid's not a very good reader or has dyslexia, so on, those kids do poorly and don't learn civics and American history and so on, but primarily just because they don't read well. So they have this secondary problem. They don't read well, but they also don't learn American history and civics and so on. So in the new world, uh, books can talk themselves aloud. So a child who's not a good reader can still do history and civics. And in fact, a teacher can be very demanding and challenging and say, Billy, I know you're dyslexic, but um, the materials all uh, um, accommodate to that um, so that you'll be able to do the American history and civics, and I'm going to hold you accountable for it, Um, that uh, this is important for you to learn, and I value it, and I hope you will too, but I'm going to be very careful to make sure that you have a way to learn it, and not that I'm going to make you learn it just like that I'm going to assume everybody's got to do it exactly the same way, and everybody's got to read it out of a textbook. So that's the kind of uh, change, I think. Yeah, so this is really a fundamentally different way of looking at how we design instruction so that, you know, all children from the child with the most extensive support needs to the gifted child have ways to participate, to be engaged, to learn, to contribute, and to demonstrate what they know and can do. So are there principles or big ideas for us to be able to understand universal design for learning? Well, there's really three kind of simple ideas that are the 
guiding principles of universal design for learning. Uh, and they come from the way the, the nervous system is organized. And the first is provide multiple means of representing information. When you want kids to learn some information, gain knowledge, and so on, a design principle is to be careful you don't present it in only one way. The example I gave was if you present American history only in a textbook, then there'll be guaranteed some kids who will not get it just because that doesn't work for them. So if you think about multiple representations, you think, well, what are some other ways than printed textbooks that, in fact, kids could learn history? And that's called multiple representations. And now that we have lots of media, there's lots of ways that kids could learn history. Second principle is provide multiple means of expression. When we ask kids to tell us what they know, if we say, and I want you to write, then what we have is immediately we set it up so that some kids are going to do poorly because they're poor writers but unfair and unfortunate because they may actually know a good deal about history and even like studying it, but now they're pressured into doing it in a way that is uncomfortable and not very successful for them. So they look like they don't know American history when, in fact, it's just that they're not a good writer. So multiple means of expression says, hmm, make sure you're careful when you ask kids what they know that you say, here's the, here's the range of things you can do to let me know how much you know. And there's now, of course, many ways that kids can express themselves than, other than just writing. And finally, the third principle is multiple means of engagement. And this is, over the last five years at CAST, uh, become the most important principle. It took us a while to get there, but it was evident in my Head Start teaching, too. And that is that as teachers, we know how important it is to engage our students, to attract their attention, recruit their interest, and help them sustain effort, those kinds of things. And that those are really the most important thing a teacher does. You know, all the movies of great teaching, they're not about new ways to do long division. They're charismatic stories of teachers who are able to motivate kids in new and important ways and reach kids that hadn't been reached before. So similarly... Not everybody is engaged and excited in the same ways. The very things that really are highly engaging to a student with, let's say, on the autism spectrum are just the opposite of things that are attractive and engaging to a student who's on the spectrum for ADHD, executive function, things like that. But they really are engaged in very different ways. And when we try to do it on an average way, we lose, tend to lose both of them. Kids who are on the autism spectrum just don't engage in the typical way we often teach in classrooms when ADHD kids are bored and not attracted. So the third principle is think about your day, your hour, whatever you're doing, and think about am I using engagement methods that are varied enough so that kids across the full spectrum that I have will have a chance to engage fully to feel motivated, and to feel good about themselves as learners. So those are the three principles of UDL. Yeah, it does seem like it's really important that we separate the ends from the means and how we expect children to demonstrate their mastery of content. Um, And I think you mentioned that, that if we 
if we combine in the goal the expectation, the learning expectation, as well as um, the means for getting there, then there, we're setting it up so that some children are going to fail. If we ask children uh, to write uh, about the circulatory system in order to demonstrate their knowledge of the circulatory system, then some children who can't write are going to automatically be, um, you know, be at a disadvantage, right? Yeah. And there's so many stories of people, I think probably every teacher knows them, but my favorite, because I've heard him talk a number of times, is Jack Horn, I believe is his name, who was the paleontologist around whom uh, the movie uh, Jurassic Park was made. In fact, he was a major consultant to it. What's really funny about his story, and he tells it beautifully, is that he was already studying bones and uh, rocks and... uh, What's the word I want to use? Uh, Fossils, sorry. He was already studying these and already had won the science fair three years in a row at his, for his state, I believe, not just his high school. But the hysterical part was each year that he was winning the science fair, he was flunking science class in school. And the oddness of no one looking at it and going, now, wait a minute. Here's a person already doing science, and people were already recognizing that he was really good at it, but his tests for science were all uh, standard, you know, multiple choice Mm -hmm. tests he'd have to take at the end of a chapter, and he was dyslexic. So he did poorly on the tests, and he would flunk, literally. He shows his report card, it's a wonderful story, and he would get an F in science and win the science state fair. And that kind of thing is just such a perfect story, you go... Okay, so the means of expression were all wrong. The means of expression that really should have counted was, this is a guy who's already doing science. Mm-hmm. And he's probably a better scientist. Not that, you know, they can't be sure, but he's probably as good a scientist as his teacher was. And for him to be getting an F means that the means of expression were just not uh, accurate at all. And uh, it was a tragedy. For teachers that are implementing college and career-ready standards, from CAST work in schools, do you think teachers are having difficulty with translating those standards into instructional um, objectives that are universally designed, or are most state standards written in a way that, that teachers have broad flexibility in how they measure students' understanding of the learning standards? Well, that's a central question, a great question, and it varies a lot, um, as I, I know you already know, but, and you said it perfectly earlier, that in a lot of standards, the means are embedded in the mm-hmm. goals, so that you, by, when the, when the, here's what you need to know, and here's how you need to show it, um, get confused, get amalgamated into one thing, is when we get in trouble, and so there are standards um, that are increasingly being well-written and being more careful about that. But we kind of are stuck a lot of times by the limits of standardized testing, which often conflate the means and the ends. And and that's something that I think is taking a while to get fixed. I think it will be fixed. And uh, it takes pressure from parents, from teachers, from Uh, administrators to say, this test isn't accurately measuring what our kids know, and we need to redesign the test rather than to label this kid Mm -hmm. as not knowing subjects or or being disabled. And as I think, Melody, you know, those laws, the National Instructional 
accessibility standards that are coming along and that organizations, including testing companies, are paying attention to and realizing they've got to make a means of assessment uh, more universally designed, not to help kids with disabilities, but to make sure they're accurate, that you really know what you're measuring. So I think the arguments increasingly are about, are we measuring kids accurately? And when we say there's only one way we're going to measure, people are increasingly realize that we're not going to be accurate, and that's not fair. Yes, yeah, it seems that there's a big disconnect between the need, what, what we know children need, which is multiple opportunities to, to be engaged and to show what they know and can do, and then our national and oftentimes state priority for um, standardization. There's, those two don't necessarily create a really good fit. Yeah, it's maybe the hardest thing about education is that we need high standards, and UDL is not about lowering standards. And I think sometimes people misunderstand that and think, oh, we're just trying to make, you know, things easier. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we're often trying to make them more challenging. What we're trying to do is to to stop the standardization of students because that's where we go awry. The culture doesn't need all the same kinds of students to graduate. Our culture needs people who have a great variety of talents, skills, and knowledge. And when we try to standardize kids into one format, that this is what we, we want all of you to be able to do this in the same way, then we're limiting not only the kids, but we're limiting our culture. In fact, mm. the same story I told with Jack Horn, but, you know, George Lucas, uh, da-da-da, you can go through this whole list, and Einstein and so on. Mm-hmm. All of the kinds of people are incredibly important in our culture, but for whom school was a terrible ordeal. And school did not help them prepare. They had to prepare themselves to be, you know, in the case of George Lucas, a great storyteller. But in school, he had dyslexia, too. Mm-hmm. He did very poorly, and no one knew that he was a great storyteller because they had said, the only way you can do it is this way. No one said, hmm, maybe you could try filmmaking. Yes. <laughs> would have been great. Yes, great point. So we have, it seems, kind of talked uh, what some might perceive as about older children, but, I mean, is there a role also in early childhood? Of course, we here at the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning are really focused on all things that support young children. Is there, uh, how, how do you uh, universally design instruction and services for young children like kindergarten and preschool? I'm really glad that you're focusing there, and I have two thoughts about it. One is I'm delighted because it goes back to my roots, and I'm glad people are doing it. And the first thing I'd like to say is that often it's preschool teachers who are are most naturally doing universal design for learning anyway, because I think of preschool teachers as being very focused on what the goal of universal design for learning is, which is turning out expert learners. Not a specific thing you've got to learn or a specific way to do something or a specific way to be engaged, but that you're an expert learner. For the kind of learner you are, you are really good at it. You really know how to learn things. And I think of preschool teachers in particular as being in that business. They want to get their kids ready to learn well when they get to school. So they try lots of things. They're much more open to trying a variety of things with their kids. They don't feel like everything's got to be written or everything's got to be read. 
And so when I see good preschool classrooms, I see a whole lot of great universal design for learning approaches being being done quite naturally. And I wish the rest of schooling looked more like early childhood education, frankly. But second point that I know there's been a, a, a recent interest in being a little bit more formal about it, that is taking the principles and kind of using them to guide a little bit uh, and even making it better. And I know two books have come out this year on applying universal design for learning specifically in early childhood education. And perhaps I can send you those references, Melody, and you can post them for whomever would like to follow up. But it's great to now have some people who are writing about what are some optimal ways to enhance it. But again, I'd come back to that you know, if you wanted to see something that looked like universal design for learning in the natural state without anybody knowing the words or knowing any of the principles, you're much more likely to see it in an early childhood education program than in a high school physics class. And so, David, this is something that teachers should be implementing in their classrooms all the way through, but is there a role for, for parents in universal design as well? Yeah, of course, in the way that uh, we would both hope that parents are heavily involved in their children's education all the way along. I think the goal that parents can play is to also not pathologize their children when they have difficulty with some things and to help both the teacher and their students recognize that this child, like every child, has strengths and weaknesses. And... What a parent can help a school do sometimes is show, you know, I don't think you've noticed yet that Billy has a fabulous collection of stamps that he's been working on for a year and a half, and it's terrific, and maybe, you know, we go if he bought it in and showed it or whatever. That's probably not a great example, but bringing up things that maybe the school hasn't noticed it yet because it's been too narrow uh, so that there's a bridge where the expertise that their child has becomes more visible. And similarly, parents can hopefully learn from the school where a good teacher would say, maybe you didn't know this, but Billy's really cut at something else that uh, became evident in the school. But if one of the things that is most important is both parent and teacher realizing that probably the most important thing they can do to prepare their kids to be expert learners is to look for things they're good at. One of the things that schools can do, and sometimes parents can too, is spend their time looking for what the kid is bad at, what needs, yes. what's their weaknesses, what needs to be fixed. And one of the underlying ideas in universal design for learning is that it's very important to concentrate on strengths, find out what is this child's best strength, and make sure that that gets amplified and um, enlarged rather than, and I've seen, and I think you have too, all of us have seen kids who would be really great as artists mm-hmm. pulled out, out of art completely to take remedial, you know, phonics or something so that they're essentially working their whole day on their weaknesses yes. and none of their day on their strengths. And that is pathologizing. It's not, no, none of us likes to spend all our time doing the things we're not good at. So uh, I think for me, the thing that is the best alliance between a teacher and a school is to work together to identify what are Billy's strengths that we can both exaggerate and concentrate on and make sure that Billy's doing some of that. Because that will carry over to the weaknesses. Whereas if we teach just to the weaknesses, 
kids start to think of themselves as weak learners generally, and that's that's no preparation for going to school. Yeah, absolutely. What a great point. Uh, you know, we live in a society that definitely values perfection, whether it's physical perfection, intellectual perfection, success. And when a child begins to struggle, sometimes there's a sense of panic that sits in uh, in the parents. And they, as you said, the focus becomes on what the problem is and that the child has the problem, not the school or the teacher or the curriculum or whatever. And so, uh, you know, I think that's a really Really great point. One of the best things that parents can do is share you know, with the teachers what the child's strengths are and to focus on those things and in the classroom environment. So what a great point. Well, our guest today has been Dr. David Rose, um, one of the co-founders of CAST and Universal Design for Learning. Dr. Rose has been uh, named a champion of change by the White House, recognized by Edutopia Magazine, which is part of the George Lucas uh, George Lucas Educational Foundation's um, organization, named as a Daring Dozen by Edutopia. Uh, what a delight it has been to have you today, David. Thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure to talk to you again, Melody. So if you'd like to learn, learn more about Universal Design for Learning, go to CAST, that's C-A-S-T, dot org, uh, the website, and you can learn more about Universal Design for Learning and principles that can be implemented in classrooms. Because the truth is, there is no average or typical child, and when we meet the needs of children on the margins in classrooms, all children in between do better. And now it's time for our lit bit. Today I'm going to share an excerpt from the poem Macavity, the Mystery Cat by T.S. Eliot. This is this poem is rather long, and I'm only going to share one piece of it. It's from uh, T.S. Eliot's book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, and it's the book upon which the, the Broadway play Cats was based. Macavity, Macavity, there's no one like Macavity. There never was a cat of such deceitfulness and suavity. He always has an alibi and one or two to spare. At whatever time the deed took place, Macavity wasn't there. And they say that all the cats whose wicked deeds are widely known, I might mention Mungo Jerry, I might mention Brittlebone, are nothing more than agents for the cat who all the time just controls their operations, the Napoleon of crime. A fun poem, Look Up, Macavity the Mystery Cat by T.S. Eliot from allpoetry.com. Since children love rhyme and love poetry, give your child the gift of language with a poem. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.